it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. Uh, I'm Hith Liday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. And joining me this week is one of the great writers for ATQ, Slurms Matt Court. How you doing? I'm very well. Yourself? Uh, not bad. Fantastic. Um, it is uh, heating up, but uh, <laughs> only the weather, not really uh, Ducks athletic activity. However, we carry on. Um, you've written a couple of articles, uh, recently about the, uh, Oregon's track and field program. It's storied and historic program. Um, they are going through a coaching change, um, which I'm not sure was expected. Uh, uh, Robert Johnson, who had been the track and field coach for a long time, um, uh, his contract was not renewed at the end of this season. What do you think that was about? Well, several uh, months ago, in fact, last fall, there was some uh, concern in the program when former athletes brought forth what they saw as incidents of either body shaming or uh, things of that nature that they felt the Oregon track and field coaching staff uh, had brought to them. Coach Johnson was uh, said to be at least tangentially involved in that. Whether or not he personally was involved in the incidents was not really clear at the time. But the concerns had to do with athletes who, um, who the coaching staff might have said needed to be at a, a certain body fat percentage, let's say, to compete at their top level in whatever their event might have been. Now, Duck fans might remember 
that it's not that long ago that Alberto Salazar was canned from the Nike track program and, in fact, has been banned from international track and field because of his focus in some areas of things like body fat percentage uh, and body type for events. And in fact, he was accused of providing medications to, to athletes that were for other things, but which might, for example, assist with weight loss, even though that was not their primary purpose as a medication. So he in, ended up having to resign from the Nike track program and his band. Which from, is not officially associated with the University of Oregon. Correct. But correct. I think everybody is well aware of sort of the connections and the sure. sort of revolving yeah. door between. Absolutely. And and he uh, was you know, clearly a, a superstar at, at Oregon in uh, distance running and well-known. Uh, marathoner and so forth. So and the other thing that's interesting is that as far as I can tell, and please tell me if I'm wrong about this, Johnson or the former Oregon uh, track and field coach is not himself accused of explicitly, at least anywhere that I can find of doing all the stuff that Salazar was accused of. That's the correct. The connection, it, at least the, the sort of above you know, the, the liminal co uh, uh, connection is simply that he seemed to have been or he was accused by some of his athletes to have been sort of trafficking in the same, you know, uh, body fat percentage, uh, uh, you know, ne needs to be this in order to compete. And that is sort of and then there's sort of a subliminal connection that like, well, if you bl believe that just like Salazar did, then maybe he was, you know, doing some of the other stuff that Salazar was doing, in which case, you know, it, this sort of, it, it seems like, and I mean, all of this is speculation. Not, I, as far as I can tell, none of this is proven, but you know, what's been suggested uh, is that like maybe Johnson was pushing some of the other stuff too. And right. that Oregon, you know, Oregon as an academic institution absolutely couldn't tolerate that. And, um, and so sort of just quietly non-renewed his contract rather than making a big deal of it. Like those, those puzzle pieces would fit together, but like, we don't have any evidence of that. No one's even said that out loud. Who's, you know, actually has any knowledge of it as far as I can tell. Right. Right. And I, th I think that's an accurate um, statement that the, at the time it was investigated, uh, Johnson denied any wrongdoing. The university took no action. They took it seriously and they did investigate it, but they took no action at the time. And my, you know, if I had to guess, and again, as you note, this is pure speculation, not really based on anything other than seeming facts that are up there in the ether someplace. The university looked at the situation, thought if there's something wrong here, his contract comes up in nine months or so we can let him finish out his contract and we don't have to renew it. We don't have to fire him now and disrupt the program in the middle of the cross country. Season. Right. I mean, that's the thing uh, that really struck me is that like that uh, again, entirely speculation. If this were performance related or entirely performance, I have to imagine that some of it is, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but that if it were, entirely performance related 
Oregon would have issued a press statement and said, we are terminating the contract of Robert Johnson for, you know, uh, for, for poor performance, you know, right. but they didn't, it was super quiet. Like you had to find out because, you know, the website was updated and it, his name didn't appear, but rather, right. you know, Helen Lehman Winters is the, the interim coach, you know, appeared and right. it, at sort of, you know, again, speculation, um, but it sort of feels like, you know, the fact that Oregon was as quiet about it as they were, you know, indicated they didn't want to draw attention to it and not drawing attention to it um, sort of indicates maybe there was something more than performance going on. Yeah, usually, you know, you at least get a we thank him for his service and wish him well in his you know future. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall seeing any of that stuff. But, either. Yeah, I mean, the, the university simply without comment uh, did not renew his contract. Not, no positive, no negative comment, no comment. Which is fairly we, remarkable because the guy yeah, had been the coach yeah. for what, like 14 he'd been, years? He'd been on staff. Like yeah, he'd been on staff since I think 07 or 08 mm -hmm. uh, there and was elevated to the head coaching position uh, 10 years ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. So he's you know been a stalwart. He's had some success. He had some success at Oregon, won some national championships. Sure. Um, that that level of performance has fallen off a bit in recent years for, uh, I, I would say, a variety of reasons, including some of the ones that we've talked about in other sports, including softball and football, which you, you basically lost a year to COVID or maybe more in some cases. Mm. And, you know, ma maintaining excellence during that period, I think, has been tough for everybody. Well, and I know, like, I, I, I don't have any direct knowledge of how this works in any sport except for football, but I am... You know, I think it's safe to assume that, you know, the, the Pac-12 just went harder at um, at COVID restrictions um, than other mm -hmm. conferences. Right. And uh, and so it wouldn't surprise me to learn, like, um, if it were the case that, like, all the SEC programs and places that didn't take COVID as seriously, you know, uh, those guys, you know, were training in a more strenuous way than, than, than West coast, um, athletes were training. Um, sure. and, and, you know, and, and you could see some support for that theory and the fact that like Oregon almost effortlessly dominated the PAC 12. Right. Uh, right you know, their cohort in that purported, uh, you know, training regimen. Um, but then when they got to competition against, um, you know, folks from the other side of the country, like, you know, they didn't do so great. You know, the, the Oregon men finished sure. 25th uh, in the NCAA right. championships. The women, you know, finished 11th. You know, that's nothing to sneeze at. But like, it, it sort of feels like, Oregon effortlessly dominating the Pac-12 and then turning around and turning in that performance nationally feels like maybe the, the entire Pac-12 was behind. Right. And I, and I suspect that, you know, we also have to look at uh, high school athletes in the recruiting process. And if you are a high school athlete who's a, an elite track and or field athlete, and you know that if you go to an SEC school, they'll tell you when you go, if you go for a visit, what they're doing with regard to COVID, and if Oregon, if you come then to Oregon and find out, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to train to a full level if I go to Eugene instead of going to pick one in the Southeast Conference. You, you might seriously consider uh, committing to a school in the Southeast rather than to Oregon. It, it, that said, you know, uh, 
the Oregon men had not won a national title uh, in outdoor since 2015, you know, right. uh, uh, and national chain, you know, like it may sound a little ridiculous to say like, oh man, it had been like four <laughs> years before COVID, you know, but you know, right. and they, yeah. they hadn't won a title in any of those years, but like, look, man, winning national titles is the expectation at Oregon. Like they it just is. built a palace to track and field. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even if they're not winning the championship, uh, you know, you don't expect a 25th place finish on the men's side, even, even if they're not yeah. number one. I mean, that's it, the that's the equivalent of Alabama finishing, to, you know, 25th yeah. in football. You sure. know, like, yeah, lose, hey, they finished three. ranked. Yeah, you know, right. it, like Nick Saban would be fired if they finished 25th. Yeah, I mean, right. maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah. not one year, but like if you let that slip for two years at the expectations yeah. that Alabama has in football, like, absolutely, yeah, you know, yeah. Completely, that that is an apt analogy. I would say that that in Eugene, the expectation of cross country uh, and indoor and outdoor men's and women's national championships in track and field, uh, the expectation is high. Um, so Oregon moved fairly quickly in hiring uh, Johnson's replacement. Um, I, I think it was less than a week uh, um, or, or less than 10 days at any rate. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they have hired Jerry Schumacher, um, who has more of a distance uh, uh, background. Um, we, uh, we have not yet uh, at ATQ written an article about uh, uh, Schumacher that'll probably happen next week um but uh I, I imagine you've looked into this a little bit what can you tell me about schumacher yeah you know he's he's actually a good fit uh for what oregon's reputation is which is you know that this let's face it the the track and field slash cross country program built a lot of its reputation on distance events there have been some unbelievably talented distance runners, uh, starting with obviously Steve Prefontaine and, and yeah. right up until the present day, uh, guys like Galen Rupp and, and Salazar, when he was at the school, was was uh, fantastically talented. So this is, in some ways, this is sort of a nod to the history of the university as a track and field and cross-country uh, championship school, a distance running school. Uh, and Schumacher's expertise is in that area. He's He's been working um, with a Bowerman Track Club uh, just previously. He's coached a ton of Olympians uh, in distance uh, events. He, he's, his athletes have won Olympic medals. They've won World Championship medals. He's won uh, U.S. Track and Field Coach of the Year. He, he clearly has the tools that are necessary to take athletes and elevate their game in meets. So, but, you know, the hope is that because he also has college experience, he was at the University of Wisconsin, also previously uh, late last century for about 10 years uh, and coming in, in into this century. Uh, he won two NCAA titles while he was at Wisconsin uh, in cross country and in indoor track and field. So he's got the, the kind of pedigree that you would look for, I think. So it was he was a college uh, distance coach at Wisconsin for for about nine or ten years, and right. then, but then he's been in private track uh, for the last fifteen, right? Right, correct. So that, basically, basically two thousand and eight through um, through now, he he's been with the Bowerman Track Club. 
the Bowerman Track Club is um, it, it's uh, Nike sponsored. They're out of Portland. Um, and, and, you know, we, we just got done saying, you know, they're sort of, you know, even though these things, you know, the University of Oregon and Nike are not the same organization, uh, that, you know, there's a, there's sort of a revolving, there's a relationship there. Um, sure. and I imagine that that's probably helpful. You know, it's probably helpful that he, you know, that, that for the last 15 years, you know, he's probably been building up connections, you know, on the West coast, you know, in terms of recruiting and, and, you know, knowing what the conditions for running, uh, you know, like, uh, in the the northwest and you know in, in the willamette valley like you know this seems like you know all the qualifications in the world uh and uh i've you know uh you know the other thing that that's interesting is is you know there's been a number of scandals you know salazar is not the only one um right. uh as far as i can tell Schumacher squeaky clean like I haven't seen his name associated with anything um no in fact no. I believe that the Bowerman track club um sort of or uh, sort of sprang forth from you know the 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 ashes of some other organizations you know specifically to be clean mm-hmm. right um, I think that's true and I and yeah like you I've done a little bit of research into his background and I don't I can't find anything that would make me look twice right he look he seems like the kind of guy who's focused on what he's trying to accomplish which is making athletes better at the events that they're competing in and not by using more traditional let's put it that way more traditional methods of training athletes up in distance running and in other track events so across country and so forth so it, this looks like a good hire. We and obviously the proof is in the pudding, as we've just noted with Coach Johnson. You, you have to deliver. So we'll see what happens. But this seems like a very positive hire uh, for the university, both on the cross country side and on the track and field side. Well, and the Bowerman Track Club, while uh, uh, Schumacher was uh, coaching it in 2017, they won, you know, three medals at the World Athletics Championships. In, in, now, that was in 2017. Uh, in 2022, there will be uh, at Hayward Field the next uh, uh, World Athletics Championship. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about that. Okay. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So uh, yet another elite level uh, track and field event is taking place at Hayward Field uh, this weekend, starting on uh, July 15th, um, the World Athletics Championships. Uh, there are a number of, um, it not only is at Hayward Field, which means listener, uh, go <laughs> and watch this elite <laughs> exactly. competition. But uh, if you need an Oregon connection, there's quite a bit of Oregon connections. Uh, you recently wrote an article about it. You want to talk us through it? Yeah, sure. It's it's really actually impressive to see how many uh, former duck athletes and and in some cases current duck athletes um, are world class enough to earn a spot in 
this world championships. And the great thing about it is, you know, here they, people spend a lot of money to get to update Hayward Field to make it into, uh, you know, again, an elite track and field facility. And this is like the third major championship that they've been able to host in just the last few months. They had the Pac-12 track and field championships, then the NCAA men's and women's championships, and now these world championships. So it's as it always has been, it's a place where track and field athletes know they're going to have a chance to compete. And now they have elite facilities in which to do that. And Oregon has some, some great uh, you know, names that, that every listener will recognize. Devin Allen's going to be there running the 110-meter hurdles. He's qualified. Um, Jenny, Jenna Prendini will be back to run the 200-meters. The uh, Raven Rogers, the 800-meters. And Galen Rupp is going to be there to compete in the marathon. The interesting thing about this is it's truly a world championship, which means you've also got some Duck athletes coming from other parts of the world. Uh, there are competitors from Australia, Canada, Dominica, France, Italy, and Jamaica, all of whom have ties to the University of Oregon and who are coming back to compete in these championships. But they're representing their nation. It's kind of like the Olympics. Like Yes, uh, correct. Y- you qualify by nation, and the way that uh, you qualify is within a national competition. Um, so even though they, they may, you know, have connections to Oregon, that Oregon fans, uh, you know, may want to be rooting them on, they, they may be rooting on Jamaica or, uh, or, <laughs> or Italy. Other places. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, duck, duck fans have close ties with their athletes and you know, hopefully there won't be too many conflicts where people feel like, oh, I can't really root for the duck here because there's somebody from the U.S. that I really like. Uh, but but anyway, it's going to be a fantastic event. And I think whoever you're rooting for, it's going to be an incredibly enjoyable and large worldwide event. I don't think we can stress enough how big this event really is for the athletes. Um, you, uh, wrote an article about this, uh, last week on the seventh, um, you've got another article, uh, scheduled to go up, um, uh, on, on Thursday, I believe, uh, the 14th, um, right. with, uh, about some issues and updates, uh, uh, regarding the world athletics championships. Uh, you want to give us a little sneak preview? Yeah, sure. Um, there are t- the two things that are sort of interesting about this meet. The, the first one is, um, that, Russian athletes uh, in in their entirety are banned from this event uh, because of the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine. So this is the first time that athletes have not been able to get into a meet uh, as a neutral athlete previously, particularly if an, a Russian athlete could show that they were free of doping, which is, was one, the first thing that caused real problems for the Russian track and field programs as they got caught doping. So pre, in previous events, Russian track and field athletes uh, have been able to show if they were clean that they could compete as a neutral athlete. That will not be possible in the World Track and Field Championships. They have, they, if you are a Russian athlete, you're not going to be allowed to compete. And of course, the per, we know, everybody understands, I think, what the purpose of this is, is to send a message 
to Russia that their invasion of Ukraine is, is inappropriate, uh, to use a soft word for it, and needs to, to come to an end. And, and while it's always unfortunate to punish third parties for decisions they didn't make, the idea here is to try to create enough uh, of a blowback in Russia to cause a change in policy. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, uh, international Olymp- or you know athletic competitions have frequently throughout history been subject to you know this sort of censor. You know, like y- using access to you know the platform of you know global athletic competition as a way of you know communicating um, you know the, the displeasure of the world community with you know certain nations. Uh, you know, famously, but you know the Soviet Union and the United States boycotted the nineteen eighty. 1984 Olympics, um, you know, uh, in recent years, Russians uh, have had to compete at the Olympics under, you know, the unwieldy like Russian Olympic Committee in name because there were various sanctions. Um, yeah, like how the, you know, I know that there are many people who like to insist that there's, you know, the politics be eliminated from sport and that like, uh, you know, oh, sports are what I pay attention to so that I don't have to pay attention for politics. And, you know, and, and I'm here to tell you, like, sports are inherently political. Um, yes. You know, go back to the Berlin Olympics and Jesse Owens performing in front of Adolf Hitler. Um, there's you know, you know, the, the, the athletes on the podiums who are, you know, raising fists and protests, kneeling, uh, you know, uh, in the NFL, like, forget it, man, there's no such thing as sports without politics. And there's no such thing as politics without sports, like the ways that we communicate politically are inflected with sports metaphors, we frequently have athletes and coaches. I mean, right now, there is a former football coach serving in the US Senate, there is a former football player who is running uh, for the US Senate, like, correct. Uh, you know, the, these things are, you know, they're they are intrinsically political and and it is an interesting um, you know that, that this is coming home to you Eugene at, at Hayward Field um, that the you know the doors of the temple are are closed um, uh, you know to, to, to Russian athletes for this reason yes yeah and and it's you know it's appropriate there's been a bunch of uh, there's been debate over it and some sports have chosen to ban Russian athletes, others have not. Uh, there have been some that have have had pressure brought to bear in some sports, like in in uh, soccer, for example, where initial decisions were relooked at and overturned based on political pressure that was brought to bear on on the organizations involved. So, <clears throat> this is going to be an issue. I don't I don't know uh, how long it's going to last. And that the big question is. Uh, if Russia pulled out of Ukraine tomorrow, uh, would would some of these organizations, not necessarily the, the World Track Organization, but would some of these other sports organizations be willing to rescind decisions and allow Russian athletes back into their competitions? I don't I don't have a sense of that. I think the the outrage level is pretty high. And so this may last a while uh, going forward. You mentioned that there was another interesting issue that you're going to cover in your article. Well, the other interesting um, issue is uh, there, there's an athlete um, who there there was some uh, controversy about uh, 
participation in these worlds because the athlete is from Africa and it's a gender issue, which is interesting. And we're going through a lot of things right now where we're talking about people who might have been um, born biologically a male and may have transitioned uh, to become a female. And they are therefore seeking a way to be included in female sports. And so you, you have some, again, just in some ways, kind of like you have with Russian participation, you have some sports governing bodies deciding that um, that it's fine. We're, we're not going to keep you out. You have others saying it isn't fair. We are going to keep you out. You have, you have women's sports organizations uh, expressing concerns one way or the other. It's not, I wouldn't describe it as being uh, anything like 100% uh, in either way. But there's an athlete from Africa uh, who is, Castor uh, uh, Semenya is the name of the athlete. And this, this is a, a person who is uh, what I think historically has been termed. Slurms, I, I'm sorry, hold on. Okay. I, yeah. I'm going to need to cut that out. And so I, I want a clean okay. take. Um, yeah. okay. Can you just start over from the thought? Which uh, where, where the, There's an athlete wrong? from Africa. Her okay. name is Master okay. Semenya. There, there's an athlete from Africa. Wait, I'm sorry. I need a, we need to yeah. be okay. silent for three seconds gotcha. to give me a visual cue. So okay. let's do that now. There's an athlete from Af uh, from Africa named Castor Semenya. In, in, historically, this per, this person has been known as a hermaphrodite, which means they have the uh, gender or sexual parts of both a male and a female. And so the question then is, well, in in which gender events does this is this person going to be able to compete? And apparently, the uh, international track and field organizations have a the um, testosterone test that they do. And if you have a certain level of testosterone that's too high, you're not allowed to compete in women's events uh, under a certain uh, meters if they're running events. So so it's it, distance is the... Yeah, uh, correct. So the, the dividing line, yeah, it is interesting. The, the dividing line for running events is uh, anything you can you can compete in anything uh, five thousand meters and above, hmm. which is also interesting. Um, if your testosterone levels don't meet the, this limit, so uh, in, in the five thousand meter women's event, uh, Castor Semenya will be racing. And it, as I said, it's a little different situation than the ones we're kind of dealing with generally in society and in sports at the moment. But it's going to be fascinating to see how that works out, because uh, you know she is a she is a uh, a very well known and able athlete within Africa. And how how it again? It's these are the kinds of issues that. You know, I think I haven't heard a lot of this kind of stuff since, you know, the East German, um, you know, programs, uh, track and field programs in the, the 70s, where you'd have testosterone therapy, basically, for women athletes, particularly in things like shot put or discus or javelin, where the idea was to help them build 
the musculature that's necessary to be successful in those events um, as a woman. So it, I, I'm looking forward to, again, this is just another thing that makes this a, even more interesting as if having an you know, international track and field uh, world championship event coming to Eugene isn't interesting enough. Now you have these other issues sort of in the background running that people can pay attention to as well. Well, it's the other uh, aspect is obviously an issue of, of great sensitivity, and I have all the confidence in the world in these terms to to write an article that uh, meets the that level of sensitivity that's required. The, the other thing that fascinates me about this subject, you mentioned a few times um, the Casper Semenya is from Africa. That is not an irrelevant fact. There are, you know, the ways that black bodies are judged by, you know, predominantly white institutions, which, you know, which track and field often is, you know, despite the fact that, you know, a, a great, uh, number of the, you know, competitors are, are people of uh, African descent um, that, that, you know, black bodies are judged, you know, more harshly and by different standards. And there are frequent, you know, racist and terrible, you know, depictions and 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 slurs, you know, directed at black bodies, particularly black women, um, you know, for being too masculine, supposedly, or, or insufficiently feminine, right. but, you know, whatever that means. And like, you know, so this is not, you know, the, the, the issues that Semenya uh, herself raises, you know, because she's, you know, vo uh, a vocal as well, she might be, you know, they, they also touch on, on, racial issues, um, you know, which are at least as fraught and, and need to be discussed at least as sensitively. Um, and, uh, and again, politics comes home to Eugene, uh, you know, and for anybody who thinks, you know, sports are a refuge from politics, um, and from, you know, the social issues of our day, forget it. Yeah, um, think again. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, um, we'll talk a little uh, football about the UCLA Bruins. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So uh, I published uh, an article about UCLA football this week, uh, actually the 11th in my Duck Dive series. We've only got one to go. I'll let you guess what that 12th is going to be. Um, <laughs> Ohio State. Uh, no, <laughs> not this year. How no? did you... I did. Well, I did two years of film study on Ohio State um, wow. because or well, because Oregon was scheduled to play him in 2020 and then that game right. got canceled. So I reviewed both their 2019 and their 2020 film. And then obviously I watched two of their games in 2021. Um, not to mention, I watched a bunch of their games in 2014 because Oregon was playing them back then, too. Uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, I'm off the Ohio state beat for a minute. Um, on the other hand, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of Georgia stuff because right. Oregon opens with them. And I, you know, I'm, I want to write an article about, you know, landing's defense and, and what better to study than Georgia for that. Um, uh, but, uh, for this week anyway, I was, uh, focused on UCLA, um, 
And uh, obviously there is an Oregon connection there. Former Oregon coach Chip Kelly has been, this is his fifth year uh, in Westwood. Um, it has not gone as well uh, as his Oregon tenure. I think it would be safe to say. Um, they had what some people viewed as a breakthrough season. You know, they went eight and four. Um, that's only 12 games, not 13, because they were supposed to play a bowl game, but then they canceled um, you know, due to COVID stuff, I think. Um, uh, I, in our podcast interview with Michael Hanna of the UCLA B team, uh, we both sort of were skeptical of that, you know, number because basically the, the eight teams that they beat were all bad teams, you know, that yes. they, you know, not, not a single one had a winning record. And in fact, it was like, you know, I, I added together their cumulative records and basically it was one, you know, a one to two win to loss ratio. Um, and, and meanwhile, the, the, uh, the, the four teams that beat them had a two to one win to loss ratio, meaning like they, they beat bad teams. They lost to good teams. That's sort of the textbook definition of average. Right. Um, and, you know, for a coach to be in year five with an average team, like with the resources that UCLA has and with the um, history that, you know, Kelly, you know, uh, had as a, you know, Oregon and NFL coach, you know, I think most programs would be pretty dissatisfied with the guy. Instead, they extended him for two years. And I'm just like, guys, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's it, it is remarkable how many UCLA fans are dissatisfied with Chip Kelly as well. They might be. Um and uh, I don't know, man. I don't. I don't think that they're going to fire him anytime soon. I, like, not if they just extended him. It doesn't seem likely they're going to turn right around and boot him. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like. I mean, th that's the nightmare scenario for a lot of uh, programs. Is you know that I mean that was hell. They they only need to drive um, across town. That might take them three hours. But like, look at at USC where like Clay Helton was turning in eight and four seasons every year, and it's like oh, it's not enough to fire yeah. him. Um, <laughs> and so they sort of got they st got stuck with that guy for like the better part of a decade. And like, I sort of feel like UCLA's on the same you know, on the same track. Yeah. Do you, do you have any sense of this recruiting thing is interesting to me because, you know, Chip was able to get what it, not necessarily blue chip athletes, but he got really good athletes that fit his system that he was running in Eugene to come to Eugene and play there. Now, as you noted, now he's at a school with much I mean, if not a better reputation for football, at least uh, a school that's thought of it, well. It ought to be easier to recruit to UCLA exactly. than what's to the, recruit to what's Eugene. What's the problem? What, why well, what, why I, I is mean, he I having so I, much str struggle getting people to come there? I, I, I mean, I, I'm not in the meetings that he has with recruits. So, sure. you know, I can't tell what's wrong with his pitch. Um, there's... There, there. I think there's actually two different things that are going on, and I, I buy both of these theories simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive. One is that he's just not interested, you know, in the like, mm -hmm. like what Oregon fans sort of learned during the Mario Cristobal era um, is that there's you know, what you need to do for elite recruiting that they like. And at every single position at the, the dudes who are truly elite, not the, the like diamonds and the rough guys, but like that dude's a five star and everybody knows it. And when he steps on the field, he dominates everyone around him. Um, right. Like getting that kinds of guys, that is a, you know, 
that's a 70 hour a week job, um, you know, that you got to go at hard and you got to love doing it. Um, you know, it, it can't, it, it's doing that job has got to give you energy. You know, it can't be a drain on your, your batteries. And so theory number one about Chip Kelly is he ain't that guy. Like he, it's just, just you know, he just doesn't want to do that level. Um, yeah. and theory number two, uh, is that like, you know, as you can, as I believe is the case for many aspects of his offense, he sort of, um, he outsmarts himself, you know, he's looking for, like, he's trying to assemble like a gorilla football team. Like if I, mm-hmm. like an insurgent football team where yeah. it's like, Oh, this guy that you didn't see coming in this non-traditional way of running this and you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, for a couple of years at a, um, at a school in a rainy little Northwest village, you know? Yeah, sure, buddy. But like, y- you want to actually like, compete you know like you uh, you want to actually mm-hmm. like you know consistently get to the playoffs every year be on the playoff conversation every year like you don't build your team that way like i yeah, i just mentioned that i have been doing all this georgia prep right and so one right. of the things that i have done is i've built out a roster database for them that looks you know i constructed using all the same tools that i i do for my pac-12 um you know uh, uh writings you know so they're coded in all the same ways and like my and I use color coding just for you know easy visual references for like what a dude's experience level is, whether he's a transfer or not, you know, how many reps he got. Uh it's you know, when I when I'm charting, so I can throw that into my database too. Like, um my Georgia sheet looks so different from the rest of the Pac twelve, but in particular UCLA. Because the Georgia sheet, it's like every position is a five star or high four star, and there's no transfers. And the progression is very, it's like they redshirt and then they get a little bit of play. And then as a sophomore and as a junior, they get a lot of play and then they go to the NFL. And then this is true for every position for every year for the last like four years. Um, And it's like, yeah, because and, and you know what? My Ohio State sheet looked exactly like that, you know, too. I just got finished talking about how much Ohio State state prep that I had to do. Like, that's right. what that type of playoff team looks like. And I haven't done it for Alabama. Oregon famously has never played Alabama. But I'm willing to bet that Florida, Alabama's sheet would look like that, too. Um, and I'm willing to bet that Clemson's sheet would look like that, too. Um, you know whose sheet looks diametrically the opposite? of Georgia's sheet is UCLA's like it's like every year they bring in a billion transfers like I'm not kidding about this six out of their seven dudes in their defensive front are probably going to be transfers wow. um like it's it, it's you know it, their defensive backs they lose 70% of their production, a whole ton of dudes transferred out because every year Chip Kelly takes a bunch of transfers in who are like older, like the freshmen don't develop because he's bringing in transfers. Right. And nobody's getting any playing time. Right. Exactly. So they leave and then the transfer leaves because he only has got a year or two of eligibility. That's the thing about a transfer. Uh, And so all of a sudden they get, you know, when those two waves collide, um, you know, it's, it's constructive interference and, and they, you know, they, they all leave at the same time and they're like, oops, you know, and Chip Kelly's left holding the bag. These are, these, this, this all fits under an umbrella of roster management. Like when I, which is a term that I have been using a lot in the last several years, and I'm yes. not just referring to, 
you need to recruit good athletes, although that is a big part of roster management. It's also you need to balance them across positions. You need to um, balance them across classes. You need to set it up in such a way that people are getting, you know, playing time that grows as they grow and that, that you are putting your best athletes on the field. It also means that a healthy number of them need to be encouraged to uh, find playing time elsewhere so that you can clear room um, for other guys uh, uh, who may be more talented or more productive for you. Like all of these are tools that good roster managers use and none of them are tools that Chip Kelly uh, is willing to pick up. Like he seems like totally alien to him. Um, So I I think both of those, um, I think both of those theories are true simultaneously. Like he's not really interested in recruiting and he thinks that he can just like, Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just get a bunch of transfers. I can watch like a couple minutes of your film at Duke or North Texas or wherever. And like, look, he does get a couple of good transfers like Zach Charbonnet from Michigan. Fantastic transfer. Way to go. Um, uh, you know, the, they've, you know, gotten a couple of other guys uh, who look really promising, despite the fact they're coming from G5 programs. He has a couple, you know, a couple of twins from North Texas. Um, he's got an inside linebacker coming from Hawaii. He's got um, a defensive end coming from Harvard. Um, uh, you know, uh, he, he, Again, they look very promising. Um, on the other hand, he's gotten a bunch of transfers that went nowhere. He got a defensive back from UNT who who harmed the development of several freshmen, and then he himself transferred out. Uh, they, you know, they uh, uh, they've taken uh, an Alabama linebacker who was not particularly effective uh, last year. They um, have. Uh, have uh, taken uh, uh, transfers at you know uh, uh, at at uh, for at a bunch of different positions. I could go down all of them. Uh, no one's interested in that. Uh, you know, my, my point is that like you know y- you you uh, transfers are just like the the evidence indicates, and I can tell you this from having done you know these roster databases for all these years. The evidence indicates that transfers are just as much of a hit or miss proposition as prep recruits, and the idea that oh they're more of a known quantity. And so therefore, you know, a transfer with two years left, but I know what his level of play is, is, a, you know, is a bird in hand, whereas a prep recruit is two in the bush. And so therefore, you know, as the old saying goes, you know, the, the former is better than the latter. Uh, not so, man. There's a bunch of transfers who, you know, who just don't work out for you. Um, and uh, the. the and on top of that, they harm the development of everybody else, you know, because of they, they sort of jump the queue. Uh, it makes it difficult to establish a queue. Like you are not going, you know, Georgia and Ohio State are not the exceptions. Georgia, in terms of playoff teams that don't play this game and get on the transfer treadmill, like they are not the exceptions. They are the rules. Um, and Chip Kelly is trying to be like, well, I'm the exception. Like I know I'm you know, such a genius that I can watch this guy's tape and figure out how to make him work in our system. And, and I'll do that at such a high rate that, you know, I can construct teams entirely out of transfers and three stars and overlooked diamonds in the rough. And I'll make a playoff caliber team out of it. And it's like, nah, man, you know, you, you, you had your shot at doing that at Oregon. Um, there, 
there were some problems with it. You also inherited a bunch of stuff that you are not inheriting at UCLA. Um, like, for example, a defensive coordinator who knew what he was doing. I know a lot of Oregon fans sort of have some beef with Nick Aliotti. Nick Aliotti would be welcomed with open arms compared to what UCLA has been doing <laughs> on defenses. I mean, it's just been a complete disaster yeah. area on that, you know, literally all four years. Uh, UCLA's defensive F, F plus uh, advanced statistical rating has been 69th or worse, um, which like given their talent profile and the fact that they're a wealthy program in Los Angeles is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, they hired Bill McGovern uh, from the Northeast where Chip Kelly is from. Um, although I can't tell that they have any overlap. Uh, but anyway, like dude has no West coast ties and is running like an antiquated four, three um, and is, and and like i mean he doesn't the 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 roster that he inherits is inappropriate for it which is why he's having to go to all these transfers um like nobody on the national stage runs a straight four three anymore like the last ones were uh, michigan state and and you know they're, they're, that program's fortunes over the last several years have sort of like indicated like yeah you, you can't stop you know look what alabama did to Michigan state in 20, yes. the 2015 playoffs, you know, like, right. um, like, uh, yeah, like I don't really have any expectations that, you know, the defense is going to get, you know, significantly better. You know, the, the, the transfers are, are interesting. Like some of them could wind up being studs, but like getting them to play as like a sum that's greater than the whole of its parts, you know, under an antiquated system, you know, and where they have no depth, like every one of those guys has to hit and every one of those guys have to stay healthy, um, in order to even field a functioning defense. Uh, it, it's like, this is not how you want to manage a roster. And mm-hmm. like, it's it just, seemed, you know, as I, as I was reading through the defensive part of your article, it seemed to me that with all of the, the change of scheme and with the losses of personnel, that they're they're almost setting themselves up into a place where they, they think, oh, we're going to have to win shootouts next year because we're not going to be able to stop anybody. But to win shootouts, you have to have a good offense. And I noticed that you've got some concerns on that side of the ball as well. I mean, I don't think they're deliberately trying to set up a defense to win shootouts. I think I think that they I think they think that this is a winning defense. Like, why would you hire anything other? I mean, I think when Chip Kelly was Oregon's coach, there were some synergies with the way that Nick Aliotti's like opportunistic defense worked, where like Chip Kelly's offense would would make the other team panic because they'd suddenly be up by 21 points. <laughs> and then the opponent would be like, well, shoot, we got to start throwing the ball and we're sort of desperate and we got to go up tempo. And then they'd be making mistakes and Aliotti's defense would be built to sort of pick them off. But Aliotti's defense wasn't really built to win, you know, a stand up fight. Right? right. And we, we saw that whenever Oregon played, you know, really sort of high level teams. And it's why they had a hard time with Stanford, you know, uh, in a number of years. Um, like, and, and, uh, I honestly, I don't, but you know, when that synergy was working, it was working. Um, and, and really like those two things fed off of each other. I don't really see any, like, I don't see any way that McGovern's defense is built in that sort of opportunistic way. I don't really see any potentials for synergies there. Um, it really more than anything else looks like a defense that wants to win the old fashioned way, you know, like, well, we're just going to, 
you know, keep you from gaining any yards on the ground uh, and, 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 uh, and, and make you earn it through the air. Uh, Cause we don't really trust your quarterback, which of course was the, the reason why this defense sort of like got eclipsed once, it, you know, the explosion in quarterback, that's really what changed in college football over the mm-hmm. last like mm, 15, 20 years is that quarterbacks got a lot better. Um, and, and good quarterbacks got more, um, there are simply more of them to select from. Um, and so defenses that were sort of like, well, we're going to force your college quarterback to make NFL throws. Like, well, they started doing that, you know, like, um, so, so yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't buy that theory at all. I, I think they're, you know, Michael Hanna, again, the guy we were interviewing on our podcast, uh, described it as a spite hire. You know, it was like the most non-Chip Kelly hire ever. It was to hire like a, a totally traditional 4-3 defensive structure. Um, and he's sort of like out of spite for the fans and the LA media is just like, fine, you know, I'll do the, the traditional thing. Uh, right. Yeah, it feels like kind of juvenile, frankly. But anyway, um, I I do. I mean, I think that Chip Kelly's a good offensive coordinator. I think he's kind of insane. Like, I think he outsmarts himself. I think his playbook is like needlessly complicated. Um, but like, and I think that their ratings are somewhat inflated by like having a pretty soft schedule. Um, and their schedule is going to be even softer next year. Like, they trade LSU for an FCS team. Um, like it's, um, and they don't play, you know, 10 and three Fresno state. They play like, you know, five and seven South Alabama or whatever their record was. Um, and, uh, but anyway, like I, you know, I, I, I think that, and, and the elements, a lot of the elements of Chip Kelly's good offense last year are coming back, right? Dorian Thompson Robinson is going to be a fifth year quarterback. Zach Charbonnet is really good. He's a thousand yard rusher. The interior of their offensive line is coming back. And like that, those are usually the guys who are doing the dirty work in terms of, you know, the, the run game. Um, on the other hand, they're losing a lot. They're, they're losing their, uh, 75% of their receiving production because their top tight end, their top inside receiver, their top outside receiver have all left. Um, and they lost both of their tackles who, in addition to being, you know, like the, you know, the, that's your pass protection guys, you know, so we're really talking about potentially a lot of problems in the passing offense. Um, in Chip Kelly's offense, you know, the tackles are, those are run guys too. Like it, it's a complex run scheme. Um, and those guys are pulling and pinning and they're doing fancy stuff, uh, in the run game. And it, it's like, you know, the, all their hopes were pinned on this Rutgers transfer Raekwon O'Neal to play left tackle. And, you know, maybe he turned, maybe he was really good at Rutgers. Like, you know, it's not like I studied a bunch of Rutgers film, uh, for this project or anything, but like, uh, even if he was fantastic at Rutgers, like, Rutgers is not running Chip Kelly's offense and, and O'Neill wasn't present in spring. And Oh, the other thing is they lost their offensive line coach. who was probably pretty good. Justin Fry. He got hired away by who else? Ohio state. Um, and they replaced him with Tim Drevno, which, Oh my God, like he was one of like three coaches that, that clay helton at usc was willing to fire because he did such a bad job and like if you read my usc article you'll you know his his fingerprints of lousiness are all over usc's offensive line they're still playing paying the president the they are still paying the drevno price in los angeles and how he showed up at ucla is beyond me so like 
O'Neill's got all these obstacles, you know, in terms of bad coaching, a wacky playbook and missing spring um, to overcome just to be an effective left tackle. And even if all those things happen and he stays healthy for the whole year, repeat all of those things on the right side of the line where they have no answer. Like, um, uh, like, I mean, no answer like that. Nobody, nobody has played. They're all low three stars. Their best candidate is either a dude who's not on the team right now, or is a converted defensive lineman who would incidentally be the second converted defensive lineman who'd be a starter for them. Like on the offensive line, it's just like, again, roster management, it's been bad at UCLA and, you know, it's going to catch up to them. Um, I mean, arguably, it has been catching up to them this entire time, which is why it hasn't been a particularly successful program. Like, you know, I I, I don't know, man. Like, it's a super soft schedule. Chip Kelly's a pretty smart offensive coordinator. He's got some good tools. So, like, yeah, totally possible that they get eight wins again or maybe even more. But, like, foundationally, like, fundamentally, like, when this team plays good teams, like – oh man, it really looks like it's going to fall apart. Like I really, yeah, and, and you know, and, and we were talking about to start like eight and four season. It's enough for Chip Kelly to get extended and the, 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 the mediocre hell that their rivals across town went through maybe what they've been signing up for. Yeah. You do wonder what his plan is. If, uh, you know, I mean, he was so ambitious, obviously, when he was at Oregon and then what in wanting to do well so that he could go to the NFL. Well, here he is now. He's in the biggest media market uh, you can be in for sports. He's got a chance to, to make a national mark again uh, with a second program in that gigantic media market. Um, and it, it seems like that's that would be his goal if his, if his ultimate goal is to go back to the NFL and I don't know if it is but if that's what it is the only way he's going to get there is by being super spectacular in I suspect a different way than he was at Oregon and there just doesn't seem to be much effort in that direction so far during his uh, during his seasons uh, in Westwood well, and, you know, obviously comparisons to Oregon when we're talking about Chip Kelly are, are somewhat inevitable. But, you know, and, you know, this segment on the podcast every week is when we say, you know, when we're talking about other teams, we're always just talking about Oregon. Like, right. you know, all, you know, this long rant that I, I went on about, uh, um, uh, about you know I don't like Chip Kelly's roster management and it's too reliant mm-hmm. on you know waves of transfers every year who then turn around and interfere with the development like uh, okay well Oregon is not Georgia or at least Oregon in 2022 is not Georgia in 2022 and you know the, the departure of Mario Cristobal um, you know just as you know any coach you know does you know guys leave uh, you know uh, and so Oregon's had to 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 grab some transfers but like i think there's been a real judiciousness in the way that they grab transfers so like they took bo nicks bo nicks has has publicly proclaimed this is his last year so that doesn't really like interfere with thompson and butterfield's ambitions right like those guys are you know they're both you know on paper redshirt freshmen um who have you know still plenty of time because 2020 didn't count right for butterfield uh you know, they, they still have all that development, you know, time, uh, in front of them. Like, um, 
you know, they, they took a couple of transfer running backs because that room is getting pretty small. Uh, you know, that that's one where there's probably going to be a healthy competition for playing time. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I like it, you know, I, uh, um, there, they, uh, um, you know, again, wide receiver, they took, uh, you know, Chase Coda and, uh, Caleb Chapman from UCLA and Texas A&M. Both of those guys are seniors. They're both 2018 guys. The, the other guys in the room, Franklin and Thornton and Brevard are 2021 guys. If the outside receive, you know, if Coda and Chapman make, uh, Franklin Thornton and Brevard, you know, uh, play a little less, you know, well, it's only one year, you know, like that's more development time, right? right? Like it's not, we're not talking about like, you know, interfering with a dude who's supposed to be like a junior, you know, and supposed to be really coming to his own, you know, at this point, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, offensive line, they took no transfers, which again, I must emphasize, I know I've said this on previous podcasts, but like everybody like I, at this point, like when I see you take, when I see a team taking an offensive line transfer or worse, like pronouncing, we have to get this line transfer to work. Otherwise our line is kaput. Yeah. Like you are in trouble. <laughs> offensive line transfers that work are an absolute unicorn. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about UCLA. They're relying on a dude from Rutgers. Oregon is reliant on no one. Like, all of these guys were organically, you know, developed, uh, you know, and have been in the program for a while. Hooray. Um, you know, they took some transfers at a uh, defensive line. Um, yeah, defensive line is actually the, 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 the one where I think they're sort of like, they might be throwing some elbows, but, um, you know, in that both like Taimani and Almavai, I think are in direct competition for, um, you know, for the nose tackle position, but like, I don't, you know, uh, I don't know how many like toes that's stepping. I you know one of those guys will wind up being the starter, and one of those guys will wind up being the backup. There's probably another dude who's a backup in um in in a transfer. You know, uh, Jordan Riley. He's a redshirt senior. This is probably his last year. You know, um, you know that that's you know they had to take some transfers there to create depth because you know dudes left the program. Jason Jones and Christian Williams. Um, right. You know, the, uh, I think. You know, that that's that position is probably one which, yeah, the the loss of, you know, the departure of of Mario Cristobal sort of like forced them in the position of taking transfers. It it wasn't, you know, I I sort of think that this isn't one that they would have done. Well, I guess I'll put it this way. I don't think they that if Jason Jones and Christian Williams had stuck around. Uh, I don't think they would have taken as many dudes out of the transfer portal. I sort of like forced into that position. Um, They. Uh, didn't take a transfer at outside linebacker. They didn't take a transfer uh, at inside linebacker. They, uh, you know, they did take a transfer, uh, Christian Gonzalez at cornerback. But again, it was that was a position in which, you know, three dudes left the program. DJ James, Jalen Davies, Mikhail Wright. Jalen Davies, by the way, going to UCLA. Well, he will probably have to play um, because they're so thin at defensive back. But anyway, <laughs> Oregon took Christian Gonzalez. Like, is Christian Gonzalez going to um, interfere with the development of Dante Manning um, or, or Avante Dickerson? Uh, maybe, you know, that that's you know, a possibility given that, you know, you would expect on the other hand, like they probably wouldn't have taken that guy if, you know, James and Wright uh, and or Wright, you know, returned and, you know, and, you know, Manning and Dickerson probably be behind James and Wright. So like, does that really interfere with James and Wright or excuse me, a Manning and Dickerson's development? Like, 
I don't know, like they're sort of, it seems like they're on the same sort of track. Um, uh, you know, in other words, like this wasn't, you know, it was a position they were sort of forced themselves into and it doesn't really change the trajectory of the cornerback room. Whereas you look at the UCLA model where it's like waves of transfers and waves of transfers out. And like, that's, you know, not what I see in the Oregon room. I see one judicious transfer, um, uh, you know, that was, again, probably they were forced into by, you know, the departure of Mario Cristobal, you know, not a situation, you know, that's not a, uh, you know, a, an appeal that Chip Kelly can make. Like Chip Kelly only has himself to blame for, um, for, for, you know, the, the having to take, you know, wave after wave of transfers and then being trapped on that treadmill of like, you took a guy who's only got two years of eligibility, which means you have to do this all over again in two years, you know, and you're perpetually interfering with your prep development. Well, it's amazing to me how similar that discussion is to the one that we've been having about basketball, where Coach Graves has decided to get off of the portal treadmill and go building a team with recruits rather than transfers. And it sounds like there's some of that going on, and whether it's conscious or not, some of that going on in the, the Oregon football program as well. Well, it, it is – I can definitely say that they're from, – from my roster databases, it appears that there's a – there's a real way to do this and there's a fake, you know, like I, I mm -hmm. deliberately mm -hmm. set up the Georgia to UCLA axis and right. you know, the, the, you know, Georgia axis and end of the axis, it's very few transfers at the UCLA end of the axis. It's the treadmill transfer. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have Oregon is sort of forced into position of needing to take transfers, but it's still like, they're, they're trying to be judicious about it. They're, I think that they're aware of that, uh, access and they're aware of that treadmill and they want to stay away from the UCLA end of it. And so they've been judicious in their, in, in their transfer takes. Um, well, you think coach Lanning would be, I mean, he's come from a program you've just sure. described. Doesn't yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think he's probably aware of that. Frankly, I think that 99% of coaches are aware of that um, and, and are, you know, are aware that there is a real danger of falling onto the transfer, you know, treadmill and that this is, you know, Chip Kelly is the exception because Chip Kelly thinks he's exceptional, you know, to go back to right. the very first question you asked me, uh, you know, like, yeah, that's the difference with Chip Kelly is that he outsmarts himself like he, mm -hmm. you know, it's you know, what, what's the arrested development quote, uh, you know, when when um, you know, uh, uh, Tobias and, and uh, Portia Rossi's character are, uh, you know, they're contemplating an open marriage and she says, like, do any of your your clients as a therapist, you know, who who want to do an open marriage, does it ever work for them? It's like, oh no, they always think it's going to work for them, but of course it never does. <laughs> right. But it could work for us, you know. That's right. It's different. Sort of like, yeah, right. Like that's Chip <laughs> Kelly's. Like, but it could work for us, you know. Like, not nah, Chip. It, it done. Um. Uh. So, like, you know. Uh, like, I mean, like name one name, a, like with the exception of taking quarterback transfers, which really seems to be a sui generis, you know, position in football. Um, but, you know, the the other like nine, depending on you, how it like uh, positions on the field, like you do not transfer your way to 
stardom like and name a program who has i, I dare yeah. any of your know, listener write in uh if you can name a program that transfers its way with the exception of quarterback to you know success and, and frankly you know what does that mean for oregon it probably means that they're not gonna win a national championship in 2022 you know because this is going to be dan Lanning's first year and as part of that you know they had to plug some holes with some transfers and you know it seems to be the case that in modern college football you need at least a couple of years of really building up um you know momentum if lack you know a better term you know building up your own prep recruits and internal development cycles in order to do that you know like i'm you know i'm sorry to break the news to any oregon fans that it you know based on the this sort of like model that you know i can see emerging that it's probably not in the cards in 2022 for that reason another but year another year of bitter disappointment for oregon th- football fans they're they're closer to being a, you know a program like that and they're they seem to you know be running as far and as fast as they can from the ucla model yes. um and like, you know, again, you know, when we talk about other teams, we're really just talking about Oregon, you know, and in last week I went on, you know, nice long rants about like Washington's cultural issues about like playing senior Jags instead of talented freshmen and the way that they acquire talent and their sort of refusal to dirty their hands, um, you know, versus, you know, Oregon is being successful by doing all the things that Washington won't do. Um, I feel like you know, the UCLA comparison is an apt one for Oregon as well. I feel like Oregon has success in its future that has eluded UCLA under Chip Kelly because they are running their program differently too. Mm -hmm. They're building it. All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. We'll wrap it up there. Uh, Storms, you got any parting thoughts for us? No, I look forward to uh, another great week. Uh, The start of the the, uh, world tracks is, is uh, Friday. And I hope that the listeners will be able to get out for at least some of that action. It's a long meet, but it's going to be super exciting, I think, for the entire uh, time that it's in Eugene. And the new Hayward Field has uh, nice shaded seats. Nice. You're going to have to have that on several of the days, I think, in this meet. Uh, All right. That'll do it for this week. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you on the flip side.